0: We can open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We've been starting in James not too long ago. And as we get going, we're immediately confronted with some challenging yet helpful teaching on persevering under trial, enduring our trials. The first thing James tells us in the get go of this epistle that's new to us is to consider all our trials joy. That sounds impossible until you realize that God is actually working for your good through trials. To God, our trials are really a test, a proving ground. They're the necessary means of cultivating the one thing God cares about us the most and wants to see in us the most, and that's not our health or our wealth, but it's our faith. He wants to see us grow in a holy faith, and that is most pleasing to him, but such a mature, strong faith doesn't come easy. It doesn't come automatically. Rather, it's most often forged in the fires of trials and tribulation, it's kind of like building muscle. Gimmicks don't work from the shake weight to electric shocks. Just, there's no shortcut to really building muscle. Instead, do you know how muscles grow? Most of the time, your body is in a state of homeostasis, meaning it's no longer growing. You've stopped growing. So muscles must be forced to grow. And that's done through muscle tension and damage, i.e., you know, like lifting heavy weights. You're putting a strain on your muscles and you're actually breaking down the muscle fibers destroying them to a degree. This is when your body kicks in over time. As it repairs your muscles, the cells become larger and stronger and you grow. So if you want to grow muscles, you have to work hard. There, There's going to be pain involved and hurt and a measure of suffering, but the one who endures through all that will grow stronger. And it's a fitting picture of what God is doing to us and through us in trials that he may put you through a tough workout, but He promises to never give you more than you can handle because he's not trying to destroy us outright. He's trying to make us stronger, to build us, to mature us in the faith. He wants to see our faith mature. And and the muscle of faith, it really just grows one way, through repeated testing and endurance. Testing and endurance. This is the training ground for eternity, our proving ground. And so we've learned from James already, verse 3. That the testing of your faith produces endurance. This spiritual workout is gaining for us the quality of endurance. And verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God has good intentions in testing us. He's perfecting us, making us more like Christ. This is where we derive our joy. And trials aren't fun. But when you view them with an eternal perspective and you realize God is actually working for us, not against us in the trials, then you can rejoice. But you have to get on board with what God is doing in your trials and really believe like verse 12 says, that blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Why? For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, God's actually preparing us for eternity. And on that day, you'll stand on the podium, you'll receive your prize, and, and all the suffering of all your trials will instantly be proven worth it. And that day is coming, but the crown of life is only given to those who endure. And so you must persevere in this faith and, and press on whatever the trial might be. This is what we've been learning from James so far as he begins chapter one. He's off to the races right away from the beginning of, of his little letter. This is a big deal because trials are most often to blame for people falling away from the faith. James doesn't want to see any people fall by the wayside in the Christian race. And so he presses this issue of endurance. And on top of that, he next, as chapter one continues he deals with two threats to endurance. And that would be blaming God and doubting God. Blaming God and doubting God. These are two wrong responses that people still have to trials. Now, first, we learned a couple of weeks ago that our trials often come with temptations. And God is the one sending us these trials. He's sovereign over them. He's, in fact, outright behind them. But he's not the one sending you temptation. He's sovereign over all things, but he's not the one to blame for your temptation to sin. James made the point in verse 13 through 15 that God never tempts us to sin, which which means you can't blame him for your sin. Instead, James holds up the mirror and says, you're to blame. You and me, our own wicked and sinful flesh is to blame for our temptation, our sin, and all the resulting ruin in our life. We have merely ourselves to blame. And so last week, we did even a little bonus study on how to fight the flesh and how, how do we win the war against indwelling sin or a real enemy. But there's a second wrong response some have in, in regard to their trials, and that in addition to blaming God, they doubt God. And this is what James appears to address in our passage for this morning, which is verses 16 through 18. Of James 1. It seems some people were struggling so much with their trials and maybe even temptations that they were taking it a step further and not just blaming God, but just doubting Him, doubting His goodness. Such doubts of God's goodness still pop into the minds of Christians today. Maybe a person is going through intense trials. And they're not holding up so well, they're they're kind of failing, they're stumbling, they're not standing firm. And these thoughts pop into their mind, how could God let all this happen to me? He has the power to stop it, so why doesn't he? Does he not care about me? Does he not love me? Maybe he's not as good as I thought he was. Maybe he's not even good. If God loved me, I wouldn't be so poor. If God were really my good heavenly father, I wouldn't have these health issues, or I wouldn't have this hard marriage, or I wouldn't have these wayward kids, or I wouldn't have this dead-end career, or whatever, the list goes on. This is still, sadly, a common response to our trials in life, but it's the wrong response. Going through intense trials and even temptations, you would be wrong to blame God, and you would be wrong to doubt God. And in verses 16 through 18, James is going to argue that no matter what you're going through, you never have any reason to ever doubt God's goodness to you. We're going to see that. This is an important passage. It's a needed corrective and reminder that no matter your circumstances, God is still good all the time. His goodness is unchanging and everlasting. Now, we'll start at verse 16. It's like the bridge between what's come before, what's coming next. Verse 16, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. That's that's what's going on here for those who blame God for their temptations or doubt God for their trials. They're being deceived. They're believing the lie that God doesn't care about them, that he's out to get them, that this God can't be trusted. But doubting God is completely irrational when you think about it. He is an infinite being who doesn't change. He's perfect in goodness and holiness and righteousness. To ever doubt him, it makes the least logical sense ever. But sin is irrational. And this wrong response goes all the way back to the beginning. Just by way of a little more of an extended introduction. Just think back to Genesis 3, the fall. And we already learned a little A few weeks ago, how Adam and Eve, they wrongly responded to their sin by blaming it on God. You remember, Adam blames really God. Eve blames the devil. God was testing them by putting that tree in the middle of the garden. Satan was one who showed up and turned it into a temptation. He was the one soliciting them to disobey God, not, not God. But nevertheless, they were still responsible for the act of sin. They had no one to blame but themselves, and so it goes with us. We can never blame God for our temptation or our sin or the resulting ruin in our life. That's on us. But not only did Adam and Eve blame God, they also doubted God and his goodness in this first sin. Did you know that? This was actually the main thrust of Satan's deception. You know the story, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent To deceive Eve, he starts off by questioning God's word. He's already sowing the seeds of doubt that this God and his words can't really be trusted. And he says to Eve, did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? And normally we focus our attention on this dimension of Satan's deception. It was an attack on God's word. And it was, that's very much true. But there's another dimension here to what Satan was doing. Eve responds, she says, basically, we can eat from all the trees, but the one in the middle, we can't eat from it or touch it or we will die. And how did Satan respond back to her? He said, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. What's he doing here? Do you realize his tactic? Realize that God is... Or Satan is attacking God's goodness here. He's attacking his basic trustworthiness. He's saying, you can't really trust this God. He doesn't really want your best. You should go your own way. It's better over there. But I hope you see how ludicrous that is. I mean, God just made the whole planet for them. He gave them this garden that met all of their needs, everything they needed for food and, and enjoyment, for for their joy, they were fully supplied. And to top it off, God walked with them. He was there fellowshipping with them in the garden. What did they lack? But Satan, you see, he's taking Eve's eyes off of all the good things she has received from God. And he's focusing her on the one thing she hasn't. He says, basically, look, you know, God, he's holding back from you. He must not be good. He he doesn't want your best. He is withholding something good from you. Do you see how Satan is tempting Eve to doubt God's goodness and trustworthiness? But Eve should have overcome this temptation by remembering just how good God was to them. Satan says, basically, you know, eat the fruit. You'll become like God. Eve should have said, what do you mean we'll become like God? God just made us in his good image. We already are like God. Satan said, God is withholding good things from you because he doesn't want you to have the best. But Eve should have said, no, what are you talking about? God just gave us literally every other tree for food. We have everything we need and God's walking with us. What do you mean he doesn't want our best? This is what Eve should have said, should have responded to the temptation, but she didn't. She was deceived. And ended up doing the the least rational thing ever, which is to doubt God and his goodness. And you find the same wrong response to trials today. When some Christians suffer, they start to doubt God's goodness. They focus on all the things they lack or the things they've lost. And they start to grumble and complain. Meanwhile, they, they pay no attention to all the good gifts God has given to them. They fail to see how in Christ God has richly blessed them. They've been given everything they need for life and godliness. And oh yeah, they've been given eternal life, but forget all that. They don't have enough money. They don't have good health. They don't have fulfilling relationships. Their every desire is not being met right now. So God must not be good. This is the height of folly though, to dare to blame God or to doubt God. And so... My beloved brethren, James says, verse 16, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. See past the deception here. Lift your eyes off of your present circumstances and back up to that eternal perspective that we've been talking about for weeks. Because from up there, when you you see your life from God's view, things look a little different. And no matter what you're going through, you will learn that he's still good. And you can still trust him. You must still trust him. This is what James helps us with next in verses 17 through 18, where he gives us two proofs, two displays of God's unchanging goodness so that you may always trust him and turn to him. And let's look at these two displays of God's unchanging goodness that you may always trust him and turn to him. We need these. The first is what we'll call common grace. Number one, common grace, common grace. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but just look at verse 17. He says next in verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. James starts verse 17 by giving us a reminder That God is a giver, but not just a giver, he's a good giver. He doesn't give us temptation, and he doesn't give us sin. Instead, he only gives that which is good to his children. It's like we learned back in verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. God delights and giving that which is good to his children. Verse 17 here is comprehensive, says every good thing given and every perfect gift is coming down from God. In the Greek, this denotes both the act of giving and the gift itself. They're both good from God. We might say today the gift and the giver, or really the gift and the the act of giving, that that the giving itself, they're, they're both good from God's hand. God's supply of good gifts to us is comprehensive. It's also continual. It says these perfect gifts, they're, they're coming down. It's a present active participle. They're, they're raining down. They're continually coming down to us like a never-ending succession, of, or succession of, of good gifts from God's hands. It's like a spoiled child on Christmas. You open up one gift and immediately another gift is just placed in their lap. They open it and another one, just one after one or another is just placed into their lap and they're opening up a nonstop chain of gifts. And so God, he continually is giving to us that which is good. He does so because he's our father. These gifts come down from our father, God, our father. And for Christians, God is not just our maker. He is also our father, our heavenly father. We've been adopted into his family. We are the children of God now. And as a father, he loves to richly supply to his kids, his children, all they need. It's like Christ taught in Matthew seven, verses nine through 11. He said, are what man among there, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake. Will he? If you then being evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? According to one study, it takes $241,000 for the average middle class couple to raise one child from zero to 18, not counting college. $241,000 over those years, that's a lot of money. And I'm sure that number swells when you include all this stuff, the toys and the train sets and the bubble blowers and the light-up shoes and the costumes and so forth. But most of us parents don't mind. We are delighted to give our kids that which is good, something that makes them happy. We delight to give to our children. Now, I'm not going to spend $241,000 on your kids, nor would you on mine, but for our own, we would, because they're our flesh. They bear our image. Humanly speaking, we are their creator. And there's this unbreakable bond of unconditional love for them. And, and so you, as parents, you're just, you're just happy to give what is good to your children. And this relationship directly reflects that with our Heavenly Father. The difference is that we are evil and sinful and selfish Yet we still manage every now and then to give a good gift to our children. How much more God would give perfectly good gifts to us? Exactly what we need for every moment. He's good. He's a good father. And he gives to his children. He delights to do so. And on top of that, God doesn't change. And that's actually that the main emphasis James is making in verse 17 about God's goodness. He doesn't change. God is the father of lights. That's an ancient Jewish title for God, going back to him as the creator. God is the maker of heaven and earth. Think about that for a second, though. The the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The same God who made the sun and the moon. The same God who made the 100 octillion stars. That's one with 29 zeros after it. That God, that supreme God, he's now your father. This is the God we're talking about, the father of lights. But in contrast to this creation, he doesn't change. He is the steady constant. Everything changes that we know of. Everything changes except God. He is unchanging. James speaks of the God in verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. This verse is the inspiration to the line in the hymn, great is thy faithfulness. You know it, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no, what? Shadow of turning with thee. That's from the old King James, from this verse. There is no shadow of turning with thee. It just means it doesn't change. Think of the shadow cast on a sundial. It's always moving. God is the exact opposite of that. As the earth rotates around its axis, or axis, rather, the days change, it's morning and evening. And as the earth rotates around the sun, the, the seasons change, there's summer and winter. As the moon rotates around the earth, its phases change, you know, waxing and waning, full and noon. And every night the stars appear to us in some slightly different position. Everything changes. Everything we know of changes, except God. He does not change. And the emphasis James is making here is, especially, he does not change in his goodness to us. He is only good to us, to his children. First John 1.5 says, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Malachi 3.6, God said to Israel, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. He made that everlasting covenant with them. He doesn't change. Thank God that he doesn't change when it comes to his promises, his goodness. You might buy the lie that God is giving you temptation or he's giving you sin or or evil. But no, God only ever gives that which is good and he doesn't change. That's all you will ever get from him. Now, don't misunderstand. James is not saying that everything is good. Not everything is good. If your house burned down in a fire, that would not be a good gift from God. Rather, that's the consequence of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. That is not good. God's sovereign over that, absolutely, but he's not to blame for that. Sin, in one way or another, is to blame for all evils in this creation. God is the one who made this world good, very good. When he finished, it was very good. And although he's sovereign over the existence of sin and evil... Sin is primarily to blame for all things, all evils in this world. Everything that is now not good can be traced back to our sin, one way or another. And you realize, though, what is God doing? What has he been doing in this world since the fall? His plan is to redeem, to redeem and restore this world. He's the one working to make it very good once again. This is a God who doesn't give us evil but good. In fact, this is the God who takes evil and uses it for good. That's his sovereignty at work. Like Joseph learned after his brothers tried to kill him and sold him into slavery. Later though, he told them he understood you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis fifty twenty. God is in the business of turning evil into good. Why? Because he's good. And he will redeem this fallen world because he is unchangingly good. God is so good, he even shows his loving kindness to those who hate him. He gives these good gifts to all. This is what we meant earlier by common grace. Common grace. This is the display of God's unchanging goodness toward his creation, which includes even wicked people. It's like Christ said in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, He said, love your enemies. What's the basis for that command for us to love our enemies? Because God does. He says after, for God causes his sun to shine and to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Scripture testifies all over to God's common grace. This is his universal kindness to all people. And it's most often expressed in his provision of Just the simple blessings of life, like food and water, clothing, wealth, prosperity, children. These are common graces given to all people, even the wicked. Now, God's goodness doesn't mean he won't judge the wicked. He will. But even the fact that the wicked are allowed to live at all is another form of God's common grace. Because you realize if God were being only just and not gracious at all, all who sin would would die the second they sin. Of their first sin and would perish forever. Adam and Eve would have died on the spot physically and then spiritually been separated to God forever the moment they she ate from that tree. But God allows sinners to live. That's already grace. He gives them time and chance to repent. That's more grace. And even allows them to enjoy a measure of blessing in life on earth. And that too is grace. It's all grace. They don't deserve any of that. None of us do. The sad news though, is that unless those in the world repent and turn to Christ, this will be as good as it ever gets for them. This life. It's said that those who turn away from Christ, this world is as close as it ever gets to heaven for them. But the opposite is true for those who are in Christ, that this world is as close as we'll ever get to hell. And that should put everything into perspective, and again, it's, it's all going back to that eternal perspective, God's perspective, which is the antidote to all of your complaining in life and doubting of God. Count your blessings. Think about all the good things you have been given in life. Not, not everything is good, but think about all the good things you have received. And you should be thanking God for them. Most people are deceived like Eve into focusing entirely on what they don't have. And take for granted all the good things they do have. But since you always have a reason to give thanks, especially since you deserve nothing from God, you you should complain about nothing and give thanks for everything. And you realize that too, that we deserve not a single good thing from God. We're not entitled to anything. The only thing we actually deserve as fallen creatures before him is judgment. You get anything else, that's grace. That's goodness. That's why we call it again, common grace. That in this life, all people receive way more goodness from God than they deserve. Most people go around with a sense of entitlement, demanding that God give them everything they desire or he's not good. But when you realize you deserve absolutely nothing good from God, The only thing you and I deserve is judgment and separation from his goodness forever because of our sin and rebellion against him. You realize that? You're going to start giving thanks for every tiny little good thing you have because you realize it's all his good grace. You should be thankful for everything. This truth should be enough to put a stop to the grumbling and the complaining against him as if he's not good. We all can be so ungrateful at times, What would you think of a child at Christmas given 50 massive gifts? But afterwards, he complains because he didn't get quite what he wanted. Instead, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, that's the command for us. It says, in everything, give thanks. That's it. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There you go. You want to know God's will for you? In everything, give thanks. There's still a lot of bad things in this world. God is sovereign over them and uses evil for good. We've learned that many times. We believe in a mighty God who overcomes evil. So not everything in your life is good, but you need to remember all the good things you have been given. And all of those blessings, they've come from one place only, and that is your Father's gracious hands. And so you should give Him thanks and stop yourself from doubting his goodness, or complaining against him. He's already been so good to you. And now there's a second display of God's unchanging goodness here that, that tops the first one by a mile. First, we've seen common grace. Secondly, now special grace, a another display of his goodness to us. Secondly, now special grace. Now I can imagine a few people scoffing at this teaching Why? Because in their mind, they don't have anything good. They can't count any blessings. They don't have a house, no car, no job, no income, no spouse, no kids, no future, no health. They don't have anything good, as far as they can understand. And so this teaching just makes them bitter. It seems like this supposedly good God has forgotten about them. I guess they're the exception to God being a good father. And maybe you feel like this, even if you have some good things, Maybe you felt like that before, but aren't you forgetting one thing? I mean, you do have at least one gift from God, just a tiny thing we call salvation. Now, we're obviously talking about Christians here. Those who are in the world, those apart from Christ, have no hope. We can offer no lasting comfort to those who have rejected Christ. You've rejected the only hope what can I say? I I can't give you hope. Your only hope is to turn to Christ. But those who are in Christ though, if you have Christ by faith, you've been given the gift of salvation. That's a pretty substantial gift. Let's unwrap the gift a little bit. This gift came to you at a high cost. It was free to you, but it cost God the death of his son Christ on the cross to redeem you. Where he bore the full wrath of God toward your sin. You were purchased by the precious blood of the lamb. And because of that, this gift also comes with the total forgiveness of sins. That's something, not because you deserve it. You, You don't, it's a gift. You receive this just because God is merciful and gracious. This is a grace gift. And to top it off, it also comes with eternal life with God restored instead of an eternity separated from God's goodness, which is what we deserve. He brings you into his glory and there you will walk again with God in the fullness of joy. You have a heavenly inheritance, imperishable or imperishable and defiled, reserved in heaven for you. So I would say it's a pretty big gift. And the point is, even if you never received another good thing in your life for as long as you live, if you have Christ, if you have salvation, you're still eternally blessed. You have everything, right? We have this little tradition for Christmas where we first buy 99 cents for gifts, just like gag gifts for one another, just for fun. And then we give real gifts after that. But you can imagine some parents and they give their teenage son a car. It's their year. They just spoil him. A $40,000 brand new car. just It's over the top, but they just want to give it to him. And it's pretty amazing. And so he receives the car and then he responds, you know, the car is nice, but where are my 99 cent store gifts? <laughs> like, How could you not give those to me? that That's not fair. Don't you care about me? You're not a good parent. Now you'd probably want to Say a thing or two to that kid or or do a thing or two to that kid. I mean, your your parents just gave you this massive gift. The 99 cent store gifts, they're, they're nothing in comparison. He should rejoice, give thanks, count his blessings, and never complain again for the rest of his life. But you get where I'm going with this, don't you? That before God, we've been given the most valuable gift ever in eternal life. Do you realize that? And then do you really appreciate it? If so, do you still grumble and complain against God for all that you don't have? Is this, is this the life you're living for? Why do you doubt his goodness? Look, I understand life is hard. It's full of trials and they wear on. They can wear you down. But if you're in Christ, God has given you his son to alleviate your eternal suffering and so at the very least, you, you have no reason to doubt his goodness to you. This is perspective, isn't it? This is life-changing perspective. This is perspective that enables you to endure your trials and your hardships, to count them joy, like we've learned from James, even in the hard times, because you still have Christ and you have everything. So rejoice, be of good cheer, take heart, and then endure You just endure whatever you're going through while trusting God. He can be trusted. He is good. This is what God's grace has done for us. His special grace, his saving grace. And now let's look at verse 18. Let's get back to James. And he he tells us a little bit about this special grace in verse 18. He says next, verse 18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What did God do for us according to this verse? He brought us forth. That's the key term. He brought us forth. May not be so obvious in the English, but in the Greek, this is the same term for the new birth, for regeneration. The same word was used back in verse 15, where we learned about how, you know, sin gives birth to death. Sin promises you life and joy, but it only gives, gives birth to suffering and death in your life. God is the one who really gives the gift of life. God witnessed his beloved creation die in the garden where sin plunged all of humanity into a state of spiritual death. Ever since we're all born dead in sin. Like Ephesians two, one says you were dead in your transgressions and sins by nature, children of wrath, But God intervened. He was not going to let sin and death get the victory over His creation because He's not only Creator, He's Redeemer. So He intervened to redeem people by His sovereign will. And you notice James says emphatically at the beginning that God brought us forth. How? In the exercise of His will, not our will, His will. That we are saved. Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God, John 113. We are saved by God's will. God saved us according to his good, sovereign, gracious will. And what did he do for us by his will? Well, he raised the spiritually dead to life. And so like Ephesians 2 4 goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. All terms and and verses uh, about regeneration, spiritual birth. You've come alive. Like Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. The problem is we're dead in our sins. We don't belong in the kingdom and we can't make ourselves born again, but God can. And by His sovereign will, he brings us to life. This is his doing. Just as you had no part in your first birth, you have no part in your second birth, but this is why we call it special grace, a saving grace and why we praise him for this grace that the creator God, the father of lights brings us to life. He does so by the word of truth. James says, whereas the gospel of Jesus is preached. It's like fuel entering the engine of your heart and God then sparks it and you come alive. Divine life is implanted in you and it never goes out. This is the miracle of regeneration. This is what God is doing for us, especially for his children only. He brings them to life, to forgiveness, to reconciliation, to adoption, you're his now You're in his kingdom. He's brought you forth. Do you understand this? And do you realize what God has done for you in Christ? And so again, do you then still doubt his goodness to you? Again, I understand there are times when suffering is real. Trials are hard on your soul. But if you have salvation, again, we're making the same point. You you can't doubt his goodness. He's given you eternity. What more must God do to prove his love to you than by giving his son Christ to die on the cross in your place? Is that not enough to show he loves you? He cares for you. He's bought you. As we've learned from James, he's using your trials to perfect your faith and make you fit for heaven. This world isn't our home anyway, so despite all the loss you might suffer in life, all the things you will lose in trials, you need to set your mind on things above, look to Christ, and then you endure. You know, just to bring all this teaching together that we've learned from James over the past several weeks, I want you to think of ancient Israel. You remember they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. No future, no hope, just death. But God, by his grace, redeemed them. He brought them forth, made them his own. He ransomed them. He took them out. And you remember where he was taking them? To the promised land, a land of blessing, a land where all of their needs would be met forever. But first, they had to pass through the wilderness. The wilderness is a trying place. The wilderness is full of trials. And I'm sure you remember how Israel responded. Just a few days after the exodus, a few days into the wilderness, and they're already grumbling and complaining against God. Where's the water? Where's the food? Where's the meat? Still, God was good to them. He miraculously provided for them time and time again. But each time they quickly forgot it and went back to grumbling, complaining, doubting his goodness to them because they didn't have everything they desired right away. And don't you find this incredulous? I mean, you want to say like, come on, Israel, God just miraculously redeemed you from Egypt. Like remember the the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. Like, isn't that enough to show he's he's good? He's powerful. He loves you. He cares for you. It's going to be so hard to trust this God. Look what he just did for you. Yet they dared to say that God brought them out to the wilderness to kill them. The ultimate uh, slander to his goodness. It's so ungrateful. And furthermore, they lost sight of where God was taking them into the promised land. You know, they're in the wilderness, but it's not their home. They're just passing through. They just have to endure for a little while and they'll be to their destination. And don't forget, by the way, that God was with them. Remember, God was actually present in their midst in the tabernacle during that time. God was walking with them. But they did forget all this. They focused only on themselves, their circumstances, their desires. And when those weren't met, they complained and believed that this God wasn't so good after all. God knew what he was doing. He had a design in all this, by the way. The wilderness was a test. Many verses say this, but I'll read for you Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. Where God said to them, You shall remember all the way which the Lord, your God has led you in the wilderness. These 40 years that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and he let you be hungry and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You see, the wilderness was all one big trial to test them, to prove them, to see who was the true worshiper, who had true faith. It was meant to humble them where they didn't have everything they wanted. To see, though, if they would depend on God, if they would trust God. And if they would give God all the glory, because, you know, that's what life in the promised land is, is all about. He was preparing them for that time before they were slaves under the sentence of death. Now, God had redeemed them and was taking them to the place of new life. The wilderness may have been hard, but God was nothing but good to this people. Now, can you again connect the dots? Because in scripture, the wilderness is, is the, the ultimate picture for us of life, of our life. This life is just like the wilderness. If you have Christ, if you're in Christ by faith, you have similarly been redeemed from slavery to sin and death. You've been brought out, brought out by the precious blood of Christ, the, the Passover lamb. You've been saved. And now where is God taking you? He's taking you to the ultimate promised land, to eternal glory. Look at what God has has done for you. Look at where he's taking you. Can you really question him or doubt his goodness? Is it really so hard to trust this God? Look, the wilderness may still be hard. This life will be hard. But know that God is testing you for your good, to strengthen you, to prove you. You just need to trust him. And he'll give you what you need. You might still be tempted to complain about all you don't have. Why don't I have a spouse? Why don't I have kids? Why don't I have more money? Why don't I have better health? And so on. But do you just remember how God told Israel that over the 40 years, their clothing did not wear out, nor did their foot swell. Meaning they didn't have everything, but he gave them everything they needed to endure. All they needed was to trust him and endure. And you need to do the same. This life is not your life. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. So you need to get your perspective straight. And you do that by remembering what God has done for you and where he's taking you. You know, back in James in verse 18, he said that God brought us forth so that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The first fruits were the the first of the crops, an example of the crops to come, a promise of what was to come. And so see what God is doing here. From the day of James through today, God is reaping a harvest. 2,000 years ago, after Christ, the first fruits of these new believers, these Christians came in. And ever since God is continuing to reap this harvest, he's gathering people in, making them new, leading them on a spiritual exodus. Into his kingdom. And the day will come when the harvest is complete. On that day, Christ will return. We will be transformed. And eventually, heaven and earth itself will be made new. Do you want to see that day? Well, then you must endure in Christ. He is the way. We learned before in James about the birth of death. God made a world perfectly good, yet sin came alive in Adam and Eve. Sin was birthed, And with the birth of death came our death, our greatest enemy. And it is sin now that is ultimately responsible for everything that is not good in this world. But God is good. And he's the one who sent Christ to pay for our sin and to conquer death and to bring us new life. And so we find that in Jesus through his death and resurrection, death died that christ brings about for us the death of death he is the ultimate proof that god is good for he is working to redeem and restore this fallen world all to his glory and the day will come when death will no longer reign there will be no more suffering but to see that day you must turn to christ it's been said that all who are born once will die twice But if you are born twice, that is born again, you'll only die once. You must be born again. You can't make yourself born again, but God promises to heed the cry of all those who truly humble themselves and turn to him seeking new life and forgiveness. So you do that today and God will give you the greatest gift. And for those of you who have received this gift Remember your gift. Don't take it for granted. Don't forget it. Live it out. Walk in it. Appreciate it. Let it be your daily antidote to doubting God or, or complaining against him. You can trust this God. You can turn to him. He has displayed his goodness in many ways. And he's good all the time. Look no further than Christ. And you'll see the ultimate display of a God who is good who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us to bring us out and you can thank this God that he doesn't change as the song goes great is thy faithfulness O God my father there is no shadow of turning with thee thou changest not thy compassions they fail not as thou hast been that forever will be we'll be very thankful for that. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that, we pray that again, you are our good and gracious Heavenly Father. And we don't want to take those truths for granted that we say we believe, but I pray this morning, Lord, we were impacted by them in our hearts. We're convicted. You are our good and gracious Heavenly Father. We confess we deserve nothing from you, Lord, but Judgment, we have sinned, we've fallen short, we've turned aside, but we thank you for your special grace, which sought us out and by your will brought us forth, implanting new life within us, Lord. And you you drew us to your son and gave us the gift of life. That's the answer to all of our ills, Lord. This world is fallen. We're not living for this world. If it is, if we are, this is as good as it's ever going to get. But we have a new hope, Lord. We have a new land, a new destiny, and this new life in Christ with him forever. So just implant these truths in our heart that we would be encouraged, that we would trust you, that we would turn to you daily and then endure. Life may still be full of things that are not good, Lord, but as we remember your goodness, may we just press on on, clinging to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, all to your glory. Until that day, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.